Welcome to Civil War Weekly, the podcast that answers the question, what happened this week in the American Civil War? I'm your host, Tim Patrick, and this is episode 148, January 15th to January 21st, 1864. Last week, we had our extended wrap on 1863 and a look ahead to the strategic situation in 1864. I think one of the more important things to point out is that the war is far from over, and despite what you might assume following Gettysburg, Union victory is not penciled in as of yet. We also talked about Thomas Rosser and his operations in the Valley. As discussed, he will return to make a further impact on the region later in the war. This week we'll have a rundown of world events in 1864. Before we do that, though, we need to head to Tennessee and see what's going on there. But of course, we need to talk about Patreon content, and this month we had a movie review. We had a comparison, actually, between two movies, The Beguiled. Uh, One is with Colin Farrell, and the other is with Clint Eastwood, so one's a little bit older, one's a little bit newer. So we have kind of a compare and contrast between the two, and maybe talk about some, some themes that are common between them that are relevant to the war in history. So it's a little bit different of a look than other things we have done in the past. So if that sounds like something that would interest you, then there is a link to the Patreon in the show description. Of course, all those proceeds do go toward the general upkeep of the show. They are greatly appreciated. So when we last left off, we had a cavalry skirmish at Mossy Creek. Remember that Longstreet is going to wish to act offensively against the Union troops in the region. He wanted to bag the advanced elements of the Federal Cavalry. By this time, Park had taken command in the area. We have, in past episodes, mentioned the vigors of campaigning, and several general officers were replaced for recuperation, including Ambrose Burnside. Now... Is that recuperation going to necessarily help Burnside? Because we have seen some flashes, but it's ultimately not going to help him necessarily probably here later in the war. But we will get to that in a later episode. We mentioned, too, the Avril raid on Salem. And if you recall, that had questionable damage, but might have denied supplies that would have otherwise gone to Longstreet's command. Even heading into the Knoxville campaign, soldiers would write about the problems with supply. If you recall, a while back we did a memoir review for Staff Officer Moxley Sorrell. Sorrell is sometimes short on details, but would make a note to say that. Campaigning in winter is never easy, especially if you have to behave like Bragg's Army of Tennessee, a.k.a. you were doing a lot of foraging. At one point... I believe Bragg's army is doing a couple hundred miles in terms of a kind of circular fashion around the army just to collect enough supplies for them to sustain themselves. We have talked before about how you did have this supply base in Atlanta. However, a lot of those supplies are going to Lee's army of Northern Virginia, that being, you know, the primary theater of the war. So because of these supply issues and lack of a good infrastructure, and really that's that's more what it is, is causing this problem of supply in this region. But all of this will not deter Longstreet. He perhaps has realized his solo operation is not going well. Knoxville had been disappointing, and already Lee was wishing to reunite his army. 
not seeing any special sparks would lead Davis to recall him. Now he needed to at least have something to show for his extended time in Eastern Tennessee. So we had the cavalry action at Mossy Creek. Samuel Sturgis had gotten the better of Martin's troopers and had forced the rebel horsemen to retire. Longstreet and his command however, were still operating in the area. Their winter quarters were at a place called Morristown, Tennessee, which is actually still pretty close to Knoxville and Bean Station. You recall the rebels having tried to eliminate the federal horsemen at that latter place. John Park had taken command from Burnside and would obviously want to get Longstreet out of the state entirely. Remember that Lincoln had made East Tennessee a priority, and there was a lot of volunteers that were joining the Union Army from that region, making it important to keep them satisfied. While there would still be irregular warfare in the region, extending even to after Appomattox, there might be something that could be done about a regular army, especially one such as Longstreet's lone divisions. Park would rumble from Chattanooga, led by Sturgis and the cavalry. They would engage the enemy near Dandridge, Tennessee, around January 15th, Frank Wolford's cavalry doing good service. From there, the Union Army would pause. They would be afraid that Longstreet was possibly reinforced from Virginia, which was a real consideration, considering he was guarding the rail connection to that state. Longstreet had not, but what he did have was motivation to maybe pull off a successful offensive action. Seeing the enemy at Dandridge, he would resolve to maybe catch and eliminate a large portion of the forces there. Not only were the enemy troops threatening him in his winter quarters, but they could also mess up his foraging operations in the region. If you recall, Longstreet was getting some supply from Virginia, but like Bragg, he was forced to supplement his stores by gathering from the country. Now, many did not see this as too bad of an issue, considering they were taking from East Tennessee, but as mentioned prior, this region was poor and supply deficient meaning this is also going to pose a challenge on top of any federal forces that are operating against him. So the rebels would roll out of their winter quarters in an attempt to protect what they held onto, as well as to strike a blow. Now, Wolford had attempted to divide his forces only days before to catch Martin in a pincer movement, but this did not mean Longstreet was above giving this a shot himself. Dividing his command, he would hit Dandridge from two directions, actually actively instructing his Texans while they flanked Union skirmishers in the process while the attack got underway on the 16th. Park had decided that he would remain on the defensive, hoping to draw out his enemy, but maybe hoping to capitalize on hitting the Confederates in the rear. He would dispatch his cavalry as such, these troopers unluckily running into another column of Southerners under Micah Jenkins before being brushed away. The Union Army would retire into their defenses, resolving to fight it out on the next day, perhaps even taking the offensive. Park, though, would wish to secure his crossing of the French Broad River, which was behind him, and necessary if things went wrong. On the 17th, South Carolina sharpshooters would occupy a ridge before the enemy. Jenkins would arrive on the field and dissuade any attacks from the Federals, who, after a spirited firefight, would pull back. Park would decide to withdraw, not allowing for a defensive action in East Tennessee. Longstreet would occupy the town following the Battle of Dandridge, 
but road conditions had not been conducive to either army, so a pursuit was not in the cards. Casualties at Dandridge were both around 100 on both sides, the stalemate in the region continuing. I think, too, we see the importance of veteran troops and the ability of these individuals who have seen combat to face what they consider to be lesser opponents. So we have Longstreet's command. They are obviously veterans, but they're outnumbered, right? So some would say, you know, why exactly is Longstreet willing to take the fight to them? And that's because they don't really think a whole lot of these Ninth Corps men and East Tennessee volunteers who have not yet seen action. So there is a lot to say about, especially this portion of the war getting into 64, where you have these outfits of veteran soldiers who are going to behave much differently, much, much differently than, say, First Manassas, where everybody is green, they're all rookies, and, you know, there's all kinds of chaos that happens with that. So you have a lot to say about veteran troops. Early in 1864, we have the Confederate government printing more money. Now, here's the problem with that. Usually, everyone simply says, why don't we just print more money so that people can have more? Well, that, ladies and gentlemen, is what causes inflation. More money means more people buying things, but the amount of goods stays the same. This means that you're going to jack prices up. We have mentioned in some of the Confederate memoirs how simple commodities will be jacked up in price, so this makes sense. That is not only the, the only thing the rebel government is going to do. Additionally, they bounced the conscription age from 18 to 45, moving it potentially from 17 to 60. As a result, there will be protests in several pro-Union areas. We are going to see this mostly in the border states. It is interesting that we get an emphasis on protecting the border states and keeping them happy. But of course, this is going to be different policy. We have shifted more into survival mode, as the letter Patrick Claiborne writes would indicate from a few episodes back. Many would be turned off, taking their allegiance oaths, or simply turning guerrilla rather than continue to serve the Confederacy. The ramifications besides turning many to be Unionists were apparent on the home front. While seemingly not too big of a change, younger boys and older men, being the nucleus of militias and home guard units, meaning they could perform crucial work like protecting supply lines or guarding prisoners. To remove these men would mean that Union troops, even escaped prisoners, could wreak a little havoc on the southern interior. You were also cutting down on the amount of skilled labor, meaning you are probably turning more towards slave labor for a variety of things. Even keeping plantations running would be difficult, especially farms that would make feeding the rebel armies necessary. Overall, this move would be a little bit of desperation. I think we have actually started to talk about that when giving our 1863 wrap and 1864 preview. While not over, there was now a real vulnerability, and putting eggs into an intervention basket, be it from home or abroad, would give the most hope. So, of course, we've talked a little bit before about how the Confederate government is going to hope for either foreign intervention or maybe even intervention from a different regime coming in, Lincoln being removed, people being so dissatisfied with the war that they're wanting a change. And we're going to see that just trying to prolong the war until we get to that point is going to be the main strategy, really. And if you're saying 
facing somebody, say, like Louis S. Grant, who's not going to back down, then this strategy kind of becomes a problem. And there are a ton of individuals who are really committed to the cause and finishing out the war. So it's going to kind of backfire. I have a letter from Lee to Richard Ewell. While this might be a weird thing to include in this episode, I think it underlies the problems of Ewell and then also kind of illustrates the patient wearing thin on the part of Lee. There will be a harsher letter later in the war, harsh in the sense, I should say, where Lee essentially does the same thing, telling Ewell to refer to doctors and then having to tell him there was not a spot for him in the army. Now, part of that is actually going to be Ewell is going to kind of break down his falling Spotsylvania and he's going to do it in front of Lee and Lee is pretty patient, but there are certain things that he is not patient for and that's anyone breaking down when it comes to being in the line of fire. So it's going to kind of spell the end for Richard Stoddard Ewell in the Army of Northern Virginia. General, I have received your letter of the 15th transmitting a communication to you from the Secretary of War with your reply. I'm glad to hear that you are now experienced no inconvenience from your injury and hope you may continue to feel none. Your answer to the Secretary is such as I would expect from a true soldier and patriot as yourself, but I cannot take upon myself to decide in this matter. You are the proper person on consultation with your medical advisors. I do not know how much ought to be attributed to long absences from the field, general debility, or the result of your injury, but I was in constant fear during the last campaign that you would sink under your duties or destroy yourself. In either event, injury might have resulted. I last spring asked for your appointment, provided you were able to take the field. You now know from the experiences that you have to undergo and can best judge of your ability to endure it. I fear we cannot anticipate less labor than formerly. Wishing you every happiness and that you may be able to serve the country to the last. I'm very yours, Robert E. Lee. You kind of have to read the between the lines a little bit with these letters in that Lee is kind of saying like, hey, don't rush your way back because if you're not 100%, then there's going to be problems. And obviously, even if you are 100%, he's still dissatisfied with some of his performances, maybe at Gettysburg and other places. And even though there are some sparks from Yule, he's really not the guy to be leading a corps. And the problem is, is that he doesn't really have anyone else to do it. Um, although we do kind of see how Lee is starting to really favor Jubal early as being a corps commander potentially. So there is a little bit of, well, if we didn't have Yule here, then maybe we could have early take his place and that might be better for the army as a whole. So much in the same way as we have done in previous years, I think it's important to maybe look abroad at some of the events happening elsewhere just to give us a good idea that not just the Civil War is going on. While it is true any list of world events is probably going to be dominated by the conflict, everywhere else is not simply going to stop for an American Civil War. You remember that we talked about events that even affect our story like in 1862 when we had a rundown of the French intervention into Mexico. While the scattered few things I'm going to talk about do not necessarily have an overwhelming impact, I hope you find them interesting regardless. First, let's head to England. If you remember, we talked about a mine disaster, and I believe maybe a burning bridge before that. Well, we are kicking off with no less cheery event than a flood. 
the Great Sheffield Flood, that is, an unfortunate event that occurs on March 11, 1864. 240 people were killed and over 600 houses damaged as a result of a dam break. The Dale Dyke Dam was built in order to provide a reservoir, but had not been prior filled with any water, only being cleared upon inspection. On the night of being filmed, wind combined with the water would form a crack. Oddly enough, something that had been identified prior, but had been deemed not an issue. As a result, 700 gallons of water would descend upon several villages, destroying many buildings in the process. Upon investigation, it was deemed the exact cause was not known. Even with the crack, the collapse of the entire work was supposed to be unlikely. In a statement about the flood, those investigated would state the following, referring to the fault of the Sheffield Waterworks Company. We are moreover of the opinion that all of the arrangements made by your engineers were such as might have been reasonably expected to have proved sufficient for the purposes of which they were intended, and that, if the ground beneath the bank had not moved, this work would have been as safe and as perfect as other five or six large reservoirs of the company which have so long supplied the town of Sheffield and the rivers Rivlin, Loxley, and Don with water. 238 people were killed, as were 700 animals. 1875 would see the rebuilding of the dam. I think it is interesting that we see such disasters. It shows, I think, the beginnings of turning to industry, as we have seen in our narratives in terms of military technology. Also in London, we have a meeting of the International Workingmen's Association, which is one of the first efforts to combine communist and socialist organizations. There were also anarchists, as well, joining the ranks. Several congresses would provide meetings with some famous names, including Marx and Bakunin. If you were to look at the history of the Russian Revolution, or maybe even just socialism or communism, the IWA is an important piece, although being dissolved in 1876. In August of 1864, we also have the first Geneva Convention. The purposes of this was to protect the victims of armed conflict, of course being setting out rules countries should abide by. Now, the initial signings were European countries who had seen the horrors of war, most recently in the Crimea and then the Italian Wars of Independence, which I hope to cover at some point. As a result, Henry Dunnett, an activist, would call on a conference with the help of the International Red Cross to come up with some provisions. Sixteen countries would send delegates in 1864, and twelve would sign the convention. Critically, the document would include the following. Article 12 mandates that wounded and sick soldiers who were out of the battle should be humanely treated, and in particular should not be killed, injured, tortured, or subjected to biological experiment. This article is the keystone of the treaty, and defines the principles from which most of the treaty is derived including the obligation to respect medical units and establishments, the personnel entrusted with the care of the wounded, buildings and material, medical transports, and the protective sign. So we kind of see this in the Civil War too, right? Like we have hospitals being marked as such being hospitals, and it is certainly against the rules of war to target these places. And I think we had maybe Lexington, First Battle of Lexington, where the Confederates were accused of having sharpshooters in a hospital, and that didn't go well with the Union troops 
So we have this being a main article of the convention. Article 15 mandates that wounded and sick soldiers should be collected, cared for, and protected, though they may also become prisoners of war. Article 16 mandates that parties to the conflict should record the identity of the dead and wounded and transmit this information to the opposing party. Article 9 allows the International Red Cross or any other impartial humanitarian organization to provide protection and relief of wounded and sick soldiers as well as medical and religious personnel. We do actually have many accounts during the Civil War from these memoirs maybe that we have read of enemy combatants being treated and treated humanely, right? So this is kind of something that we're already seeing during the American Civil War. While we have the Geneva Convention, this did not mean we did not have conflicts abroad besides the American Civil War. 1864 marked the Third Battle of Nanjing in China, which would be the end of the Taiping Rebellion. This was a rebellion against the Qing Empire, led by a Han subgroup, which was led by Hong Zhangquin, who proclaimed himself to be the brother of Jesus Christ, making his faction also known as Taiping Heavily Kingdom. This was a religious rebellion that actually became one of the largest conflicts in terms of casualties in human history. 20 million people would die as a result of a 14-year civil war between the rebels and the Qing Empire, who eventually would wear down their enemy with various provincial armies. One such provincial Hunan army was led by Zheng Fan and would besiege Neijing, which was the capital for the rebels. In 1864, he would capture the city, which was unfortunately followed by massacres and looting. Hong Jiuquan had died previously, and this would effectively end the rebellion. Britain and France would both be keeping close tabs on these events, as soon there would be some tug of war going on in China. Just as a side note, I apologize if any of the pronunciation of the Chinese there is incorrect. I certainly did my best, so hopefully it passed. We also have the Second Schleswig War, fought between Denmark and Prussia with their Austrian allies. Remember, we have talked in previous world events about Otto von Bismarck, and the creation of the German nation. While Denmark would differ in opinion about the possession of Schleswig, which would spark conflict in 1864. Beginning in February and wrapping up in October, the war would see the state fall under Prussian control as they had a larger army. Receiving no help from allies, the Danes would be forced to sue for peace, with the combined enemy forces occupying much of the Danish mainland before its conclusion. In many ways, this would be a prelude to the Franco-Prussian War, which is sort of a prelude to World War I, and of course, Prussians will also engage their Austrian allies in another brief war, building up the German nation and war machine. Closing out on some positive news, in 1864 in America, we have the founding of Gallaudet University in Washington, D.C. This was a school specifically designed for education of deaf and hard of hearing. Edward Minor Gallaudet would be the first president of the college, his father Thomas Gallaudet being the official namesake of the school and the founder of the American School for the Death in 1876. 
Edward's mother was deaf, so probably motivated both father and son to contribute to further education of deaf children and then higher education in the form of the university, which is still in operation today and the only one of its kind. So let's go ahead and call it a day. This week we talked about the Battle of Dandridge in Tennessee. Longstreet is denied again a chance to eliminate John Park. We talked a little bit about changes in the Confederate government, trying to put more troops in the ranks, and read a letter from Lee to Ewell that gives us an idea of how Lee communicates. We close out with world events of 1864, running down a good few. Next week we will remain in Tennessee, hopefully wrapping up Longstreet's actions and campaigns with a long-awaited conclusion to the Knoxville venture, as well as head to Alabama. If you like what you hear, please make sure to leave a review. Posted in the description should be a link to the website as well as Patreon and Venmo information. Support for the general upkeep of the show would be greatly appreciated. Once again, feedback is always welcome. Questions, comments, concerns, the email is cwweeklypod at gmail.com. Thank you so much for listening and have a great week. <laughs>